0: The only way to inherit eternal life, the only way to enter the kingdom, is to be rescued by God from the mess you've made of your life.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What must a person do to inherit eternal life? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series titled The Rich Young Ruler. Sadly, many believe that salvation can be achieved by human effort and good works, and that in the end, it comes down to a matter of your good works outweighing the bad. Well, this unbiblical understanding of salvation is not a modern concept. The rich young ruler that Jesus encountered in Mark 10, he believed salvation could be obtained apart from a miraculous work of God. But as you'll see in this new series, Christ emphasizes to the rich young ruler that salvation is humanly impossible. It can only be accomplished by a divine miracle of God's grace. And Tom, why is it so important today that we must all understand what the Bible teaches about salvation?
0: I think what we're really saying is that you have to have a a right understanding of the gospel because it's only the true gospel of Jesus Christ that saves people from their sins. That means, obviously, on a personal level, if you're not in Jesus Christ, you need to understand how you can be saved, how you can be rescued from your sin, and that only God can accomplish that salvation for you. Only God can give you a new heart. If you're already a believer, for those of us in Christ, we need to be reminded that it's the power of the gospel that fuels our evangelism. Paul said the gospel of which he was not ashamed is the power of God into salvation. And so it's imperative that you and I understand what the Bible teaches about salvation. To make sure we believe the biblical gospel and that we really know God, and as believers, to know what it is that should be our
1: message. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now as he begins to examine the biblical account of Christ's interaction with the rich young ruler, right here on the Word Unleashed.
0: In first century Judaism, wealth was something good, it was something to be sought, it was welcomed. And that was because they embraced what theologians call a retribution theology. Retribution theology simply teaches that there is a direct correspondence between your circumstances in this life and God's blessing and favor. So if you're wealthy, if you have much, then that's a sign that God is pleased with you and therefore you are enjoying His blessing. You say, where did that idea come from? Wealth as a sign of God's blessing. Well, you remember, God promised to bless the descendants of Abraham. And if you go back and look, you can see that there was material blessing that was a part of that. It wasn't the main part of it, but it was certainly part. And this is where they constructed this sort of retribution theology. For example, of Abram, it said in Genesis 13 2, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. The same thing is true for his descendant Isaac. Genesis 24 35. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, his servant says to Rebecca and her her parents, so that he has become rich, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. It's reiterated in chapter 26 that Isaac became very rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. The same thing is true of Jacob. In in Jacob's life, in Genesis 30 verse 43, it says he became exceedingly wealthy prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. And so the story goes, there were other examples in the Old Testament of those those who knew God's favor and who also enjoyed, along with God's grace and salvation, material prosperity and wealth. And so that by the time Jesus preached in the first century, in first century Judaism, wealth was practically equivalent to godliness. One commentator writes, rabbis like Hillel and Akiba, who rose from obscurity and poverty to wealth and influence, are commended without embarrassment. It's a wonderful thing that they're rich and prosperous because that's a sign of God's obvious blessing in their life. You can see the sort of predecessor here to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of our day. There are still people who try to connect faith and wealth. They sell what we call the prosperity gospel, a a strange mixture of Jesus Christ and faith in Him, sometimes, not always, along with He wants you to be wealthy. That's really what He wants for you. In this passage that we begin to look at tonight, Jesus will destroy such a view, whether it's the first century view or the contemporary one. Instead of being a spiritual advantage, Jesus wants us to know that wealth can easily become a roadblock to true salvation. Let me read for you this account, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, that is, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible but not with God. For all things are possible with God. I want us this week and, Lord willing, next Sunday night to see this story unfold. There's so much here. There's so much more than meets the eye at the first reading. And I want us to begin to unfold it tonight by looking at a man who appears to be a seeker. We talked... A couple of Sunday nights ago, about are there really any seekers? And the short answer is no, no one seeks for God. If someone is genuinely seeking God, it means God has first sought him and made him a seeker. But here we meet a man who, on the face of it, appears, if ever there was a genuine seeker, to be one. Notice verse 17 begins as he was setting out on a journey. Now, let me remind you of the historical context here. Jesus and his disciples are traveling toward Jerusalem. Just to remind you, after the raising of Lazarus, Jesus moved just north of the city of Jerusalem, where you see me pointing there, down just north of Jerusalem. Then, shortly before the Feast of Passover, he and his disciples went up to Galilee, joined a large group of pilgrims coming down for the feast, and then comes down the Jordan Rift with those pilgrims coming to the Passover. Somewhere here in Perea is where we catch him now. On this side of the Jordan Rift Valley, he's heading down. The next stop will be Jericho where Zacchaeus comes to Christ but we're in this yellow area, marching down the Jordan Rift with those who are going to partake of the Passover. It's spring. They're on their way to the Passover, and this is Jesus' last Passover, the one at which He will be crucified. In fact, when we read this account, it is just a few days before the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. They're here in Perea. Notice verses 10 and 12 tell us that they were in a house, probably as they were journeying down with these other pilgrims, they had prearranged to stay at the house of one of Jesus' disciples somewhere in this region. And so after a long day's journey, they arrive at the house, Jesus teaches his disciples there But then, probably the next morning, as they were preparing to leave that house and that town and continue their journey toward Jerusalem, some parents heard Jesus was there. And these parents bring their children, and we went through that story in verses 13 to 16, as Jesus urges them to bring the children, and He blesses them. After that, after he blessed the children one by one, Jesus and his disciples finally try to set out on the next day's journey. But before they can make any progress, something else happens that stops their, their progress immediately. Look at verse 17 again. That morning, as, after he blessed the children, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. First of all, I want you to consider this seeker as far as who he is. Mark simply refers to him in the original language as one. One ran up to him, or a certain one ran up to him. Matthew tells us that he was a young man. The Greek word for young here usually refers to someone between puberty and marriage. Luke calls him a ruler. We can't be sure what that means, but probably, even though he was still very young for the role, he had become so influential in his community that he served as one of the lay rulers of the synagogue, one of the the men who determined who would read and who would teach in the local synagogue there in Perea. That meant that at a very young age, he'd already become very influential in his community. Later in the story, both Matthew and Mark tell us that this man owned much property. And the Greek word that's used implies land or real estate. We don't know if he inherited that property or if he was an investor and managed to to develop his wealth on his own. But regardless, he was into property and he was not just wealthy. Luke says he was extremely rich. But apparently, this man's influence not only grew out of his great wealth, but also his having the wisdom, even at a young age, to invest his life in things that mattered. To invest his resources in the service of the synagogue, and in the pursuit of a life of obedience to the, the Torah, the Scriptures, and the worship of the true God. Honestly, if you met this man, he'd be the kind of man you'd want your daughters to marry sincere, honest, wealthy, spiritually minded, service-oriented, well-known, and well-liked. Very influential at a very young age. He was one of the best of human beings. That's who he is. But notice what he does. Verse 17 says, this man, who is all those things, ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. Now there are two things very unusual in that expression. First of all, he runs up to Jesus. Clearly there is an urgency, there's a a passion in this encounter. In the culture, the Hebrew culture of the first century, mature men, young or old, mature men did not run. And the older you were, or the more influential you were, the less you hurried, because you were the important one. Everyone else varied their schedules to accommodate you. To rush or to hurry, to run, would undermine your dignity. By the way, that's what is so amazing about the story of the prodigal son, when that wealthy father representing God sees his son, the prodigal, coming And he gathers up his gowns and throws dignity to the wind and runs across the village to welcome home his repentant son. It's a beautiful picture of God and his response to the repentant sinner. That's what this young man does. Influential, a ruler in his community, but he runs. He throws decorum to the wind and he runs to find Jesus. Apparently, Jesus only spent one night in this town, on his way to Jerusalem, and this young ruler learns about Jesus' presence presence there at the last possible moment. He had just enough time to get there before Jesus leaves for Jerusalem. So he runs. The other unusual thing in what this man does is that he knelt before Jesus. This was not done before the rabbis. This is not typically done when you entered the presence of a rabbi. It was a sign of great humility, of acknowledging someone to be your great superior. It suggests that this young man had a deep respect for Jesus. It's likely that he had heard of Jesus before, heard of his teaching, heard of his miracles, and he desired to meet him and to talk with him. And early that morning, perhaps in morning prayers, maybe he heard that Jesus had stayed the night in their little town. And he'd even received some parents with their children and bless them but he's about to leave he's about to move on in his journey to jerusalem so this young man runs to find jesus and then in a sign of his humility and his respect for jesus he does what he wouldn't have done to any other rabbi he kneels down before him now what does this wealthy young ruler want from jesus well there's a question that's apparently troubled him for a long time Look at what he asks. There's no parallel in the writings of the rabbis for the greeting this man gives Jesus, good teacher. Jesus' life had made a great impact on this young, successful entrepreneur, this possibly real estate investor, or or one who had inherited wealth and managed it wisely. And he has a question for This teacher he respects so much, his question has to do with what he can do to make sure he gains eternal life. Look at it. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew puts it slightly differently. Matthew says, someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? That phrase, eternal life, that expression, finds its basis in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, something the rabbis talked about often. Daniel 12, 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, some to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Talking about the final resurrection. The reference to everlasting life refers to taking part in the final resurrection and having assurance of that today. So what this young man wants to know is what he can do to ensure that he will be part of the final resurrection unto life and be sure today that he has it. There are several other phrases in the context that make it very clear that this is what the man was asking. Look down in verse 17, and you you see the expression inheriting eternal life. In verse 23, in the same context, Jesus talks about entering the kingdom of God. And down in verse 26, he talks about being spiritually, the disciples respond in talking about being spiritually saved or rescued. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about gaining eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, both in its spiritual aspect now and eventually in its physical aspect, and being spiritually rescued or saved. That's what we're talking about. They're all used synonymously. It's a remarkable question. The man came to the right person asking the right question. No one's ever asked this question of Jesus. Not even his own disciples have asked the question this directly. James Edwards says, At last, Jesus has asked the essential question capable of divulging the meaning of his ministry. It's a truly remarkable young man. He appears, doesn't he, to be a genuine seeker after God. I mean, think about his spiritual assets just in this passage that we've read. He has a commitment to the true God. He has an earnest desire to get Jesus' answer on life's most important question. He has a troubled conscience that's led him here. He has an emotional response to Jesus, a deep respect for Jesus as a moral teacher, a genuine interest in Jesus' teaching, a longing for eternal life, a thorough knowledge of God's law, an external conformity to God's law, a spiritual heritage in his family. He says, I've I've kept these things from my youth, that is, from my bar mitzvah. I was trained in these things as a child, and once I became a son of the law at 13, I've kept these things. He had a spiritual heritage. And there was an intensity in this young man, a sincerity about spiritual things that you can sense, uh, and certainly a consistent display of self-discipline to even externally conform to the law of God. Really a remarkable, remarkable young man. He wants to obtain eternal life and he wants to enter the kingdom of God. But he has no clue. And here's the key he has no clue that he needs to be spiritually rescued. He wants eternal life. He wants to enter the kingdom. And he thinks he's almost there. He just lacks something yet. He has no clue that the only way to inherit eternal life, the only way to enter the kingdom, is to be rescued by God from the mess you've made of your life. It's very important to understand that. Because understanding that is what makes Jesus' shocking response understandable. Because Jesus' shocking answer to this man is calculated to show him just that, that eternal life is going to mean receiving it as a gift. So I want you to notice, secondly, Jesus' shocking answer. If you're honest with yourself, there have been many times in your life, if not now, when you would love to run up to Jesus Christ personally and ask Him this question. But my guess is, if you'd done that, if you'd been there that day, if you'd been the one asking the question, you would have been shocked at Jesus' answer. If someone asked you, for example, today, how do I obtain eternal life? Would you say what Jesus said? Look at his response, verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The Rich Young Ruler. Tom will have Part 2 for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at Wordunleash.org. Again, that's listeners at the Wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one eight seven seven five seven seven word And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us You can find out how to do so By visiting the Again that's the And now for Tom Pennington And the entire team I'm Bill Wright Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed Exalting God's glory Explaining God's truth